sons and daughters who were walking in the darkness. You were calling us to lead them back to you. And you see your spirit rising as the lost come out of hiding. Every heart will see its hope we have in you. Jesus, you are glorious, and we pray now that you would send your word, uh, your word that is a fire, and your word that is a seed, an eternal, indestructible seed that is even your very self. Send it that it might take root deep in the dark prison of our heart. May our hearts be fertile soil for you, Lord Jesus. Help us preach. In your name we pray. Amen. Anything wrong? The accommodations? Huh? Oh, no, 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 they're quite interesting. This is what we've come to regard as the common room for those who wait. Do they all await the Inquisition? 
Ah, no, senor, not all of them. Most of these are merely thieves and murderers. Oh. If you want anything, just shout. If you're able. What do you mean by that? You meant to frighten us. That was uh, Miguel de Cervantes in the 1972 movie musical, The Man of La Mancha. I'd never seen that till last week when Christian Compost uh, loaned it to me. Um, but uh, watching that scene made me think of what we were preaching about this last week. Uh, Cervantes is arrested by the religious authorities and he's placed in a dark prison, a prison of fear. They're trying to fill us with fear. And that caught my attention. Because last week, we preached on the prison of fear called me. When I'm honest, all my fears are about me. For I assume that me is the savior. <laughs> but me is not the savior that I need. As we preached on extensively last year, in every person there's this mystery that has absolutely stumped psychologists, anthropologists, biologists, physicists, and philosophers. And that mystery is self-awareness. That is that there is an I that observes me. And that I cannot be observed. For the moment I observe I, I have become me, right? That I am observing. It's like I exist in the eternal now, outside of time. I exist in the eternal now, but me is an object that I create in time. I create me by taking. You know, I create my body, my flesh, by eating, by literally taking life. Every cheeseburger, every salad is life that I take, which becomes me. But me, and what the Bible calls the flesh, is not simply a physical reality, so I create me by taking life, for me, and I create me by taking credit for me. Peter Hyatt, master of divinity, pastor of the sanctuary downtown, father of four, me. What scripture calls the old man, the old Adam. In Genesis 1, the snake tempts Eve and Adam saying, take, take, take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and make, make yourself, make your me in God's image. You know, Adam and Eve are already breath of God, spirit of God, right, in dirt. I've wondered if that breath is I, and the dirt is like the beginning of me. Well, they fall because in faithless fear, Adam and Eve try to clothe themselves in, in more me, more self. They try to make their me in the same way I think I make me. 
I make me by taking what God says belongs to him. I make me by taking, and that taking is violence. It's, it's competition. And now you may say, well, competition, I mean, competition is only natural. Yeah, it is natural for a God-cursed world. You may say, but competition is life. The survival of the fittest explains life. Well, no, the survival of the fittest explains death. And death cannot create life. Competition is not life. Cooperation is life. But in a fallen world full of fear, I try to save my life at the expense of other lives. See, the problem with my life is that it's a life cut off from life, the source of life. Like I said last time, the problem with my flesh is not that my flesh experiences pleasure or pain. The problem with my flesh is that my flesh only experiences its own pleasure, its own pain. And so it's a prison of me, a prison of fear all about me. My flesh feels only its own pain, its own pleasure, except, except perhaps for a fleeting moment wherein my flesh becomes one with another's flesh in the communion of the sacrament, of the covenant of my marriage, where for a moment my bride's pleasure becomes my pleasure. And my pleasure becomes her pleasure. And scripture says we become one, one flesh. A miracle of miracles, it doesn't produce death. <laughs> it produces life. I mean like babies, four, four of them at least. Well, I'm pretty sure just four. But anyway, sexuality, <laughs> sexuality is so sacred in our faith because it's a parable and it's a sign that's built into our very flesh from before the fall telling us about life in the kingdom of God. Well, for now, my point, point is, is just this. I create me by taking. And so the me that I create is, is a thief and a murderer. It is my own prison of fear in a world of fear. What I'm saying is the trouble with me is me. What we preached on last week. Well, in John chapter three, you know, we've been preaching through John and the last couple of weeks have been in John chapter three. In John chapter three, Nicodemus, a Pharisee, comes to Jesus by night. He's afraid. He comes to Jesus by night, yet he wants to see. He wants to see the kingdom of God. And Jesus tells him that he must be born again. Perhaps his I needs a new me. He must be born again, or more precisely, he must be begotten from above, begotten of water and spirit. You know, baptism is water and spirit. Well, Jesus says, you must be begotten from above. Then in verse six, that which is flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. You know, we think flesh is real and spirit is so unreal, but nothing is more real than spirit. For the Lord is spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Because nothing can contain it, imprison it, him. 
Well, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Then verse eight, the wind, or spirit, blows where it wills, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it's going, but you, so, or so it is with everyone born of the spirit. So you see, I create the man of flesh with my will and my control, but God creates the man of the spirit with his will and his word that once upon a time became flesh. Verse 16, for God so loved the world, the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, literally be perished or be lost, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Why did he send his son into the world? in order that the world might be saved through him. Not some of the world. The world. His purpose to save the world. And that would mean everybody wins. And that would mean salvation If that's his purpose, that would mean salvation is not a competition. In other words, your eternal life is not not dependent on somebody else's eternal death. Except perhaps Jesus' death. And he is eternal life. So anyway, if you think salvation is a competition, I bet that's your flesh talking. And if you want to ever see the kingdom of God, you're going to have to lose it and get born again because that place you're trapped is a a prison of fear at the edge of hell. Verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed, not trusted in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And what's his name? You know it, right? Jesus, Yeshua. You know what it means? God saves. Not you save, God saves. And this is the judgment. God saves. This is the judgment, the light. And who's the light? Jesus And this is the judgment, verse 19. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. They love their prison of fear. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. That his deeds have been done in God, like in communion with God. You know, I remember wrestling with these scriptures and some other scriptures uh, one day, just really struggling, and finally I complained to God and said, God, it's like you're saying that everything bad in me is my fault, and that everything good in me is like your fault, like to your credit, everything I do is bad and everything you do is good and I don't get any credit. And then all of a sudden, ding, 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 all the lights went on and I realized, hey, 
If I actually believed that, I'd be free. I would be free of the prison that is me. And not only begotten, but, but born, born from above. Now, sorry uh, to do this, but I really want you to see this. The two me's, you remember from our sermons uh, in Genesis chapter three, okay? Okay, this is the me that I create. The me that I create with my judgments, through my knowledge of good and evil, uh, by the flesh, according to the law. And the me that I create, according to scripture, is disobedience, darkness, death. It is emptiness and lies. It's the old Adam. And I think that's what John means when he talks about the flesh. On your left. But on the right is the man, the me, that God creates with God's judgment. And what is God's judgment? Jesus Christ and him crucified. Grace. And he's mercy, light, life, substance, truth. The new Adam, the new man. And I think this is what John would call, and Jesus would call, the man of the spirit. Now John has just told us some amazing things about these two two things, two men, the, the flesh, the man of the spirit, or the man of the flesh loves darkness. In other words, he's an act that hides evil. I, it's I clothed in my deeds and my works, fig leaves in law, and uh, the man of the flesh is a lie. But the man of the spirit loves light. He's transparency that reveals grace. I, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and he's the truth. The man of the flesh is condemned already, already condemned. He's already lost. The man of the spirit, he is eternal and indestructible. First Peter says you've been born of indestructible seed. And Paul says you're already seated in the heavenly places with Christ. He's already won. The man of the flesh is the prison of fear. The man of the spirit is the household of faith. What's born of the flesh is flesh, says Jesus, and what's born of the spirit is spirit. And so, which one are you? Yeah, exactly right. If you're a believer and you're still alive in this world, you're both. And that means you're worse than you think. And you are far, far, far better than you think and nothing in between. Get that? You're far worse than you think, you're far better than you think, and you're nothing in between. One me has already lost everything. <laughs> and one me has already won everything, but there is no me that needs improving. And there is no me at risk of failing. There is, there's no me to worry about. For what's born of the flesh is flesh, and what's born of the spirit is spirit. Flesh doesn't turn into spirit. 
and spirit doesn't turn into flesh. However, just like light shines in the darkness, spirit is revealed in the midst of flesh. And the man of spirit is begotten within the man of flesh. Indeed, the flesh, or the flesh, is like the space in the womb. It's like a womb in which the man of the spirit is revealed. So flesh is displaced by spirit as it grows. But flesh cannot create spirit. Death is replaced by life, but death can't create life. Disobedience is displaced by mercy. Darkness is displaced by light. Lies displaced by truth. Fear by faith. Old man by new. This gets filled with this. And the shape of my emptiness becomes the shape of his fullness. So we sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, a particular unique wretch like me uh, that is the form for the particular unique glory that God is revealing. The new me filled with grace through faith. But for now, I have two me's. One that needs to be disposed of, washed away, and one that needs to be revealed. Next verse. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. Baptism symbolizes the washing away of the old me and the revelation of the new me, grace. John also was baptizing at Ainon near Salim. That means where you can see near peace because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, check it out. He's baptizing too and everybody's going to him. See what's going on? The disciples of John are afraid. Why? Because they're competing with Jesus. Are you afraid? I am a lot. Maybe it's because my old man is competing with Jesus. Maybe I think I'm the savior. Maybe you think you're the savior. Next verse. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. I cannot even receive one thing except grace. By grace, sheer grace. Not even one thing. Not even myself. And if I think I can, I'm a liar, lost and condemned already. You see, the old man is really an empty illusion. The old man is nothing but lies. And the new man is nothing but grace, all gift. So if I'm honest, what could I ever boast of? What could I ever be embarrassed by? A man suffering from an inferiority complex went to a psychologist. The psychologist ran some tests. 
called the man back in and said, good news, <laughs> you don't have a complex. You really are inferior. <laughs> you see, that's good news. I mean, we really all are inferior before Jesus. We're dead. And the thing that's alive is Jesus. What would I be ashamed of or embarrassed about? Soren Kierkegaard wrote, it is a consoling idea that before God we are always in the wrong. Yeah, it is. Anything that you think you are responsible for creating is evil illusion and condemned already. Don't hide it, confess it, just, just get rid of it. And why am I anxious? I have no me that needs justifying, defending, or even improving. And why do I despair? One self is condemned already and one self is eternally perfect. Thomas Merton wrote this, a man who is truly humble cannot despair. Because in the humble man, there is no longer any such thing as self-pity. Why feel sorry for a lie? And why would I ever feel sorry for eternal perfection? Whenever I'm proud or boastful, ashamed, anxious, or despairing, whenever I'm afraid, I'm believing a lie that I think is me. I don't need to defend the lie. I just need to let it die. I don't need to fight the darkness. I just need to turn on the light. And one more question, how could I ever compete? I mean, what would I compete with? My old man has already lost, and my new man has already won everything. First Corinthians three, St. Paul asked the Corinthians, why are you competing? And then in verse 21, so let no one boast of men, for all things are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God. See, everything is, is grace, gift. So there's, there's only nothing that you could compete for, and that nothing is your prison of fear, the substance, the suburb of hell. And so John the Baptist saw the Savior and refused to compete. Verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness, he says, that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. In those days, the friend of the bridegroom would guard the wedding chamber. And I've read that this was his job. He would listen for the voice of the bridegroom calling out from the chamber when the bridegroom had consummated the marriage. And then the friend of the bridegroom would go to the waiting wedding party, waiting to party and feast and say, the wedding, the marriage has been consummated. And then the party would start and they'd feast and celebrate on into the night. Why? Because the groom had clothed his bride with himself, his body, and his blood. You know, Jesus came to deliver us from our old dead selves and clothe us with himself. And so John says, far be it from me, far be it from you, far be it from any religious establishment, doctrine, or work of man to compete with the bridegroom of grace. Verse 30. 
He must increase, but I must decrease. You know, John is the last and the greatest of the Old Covenant prophets. In the Old Covenant, it's like God says, Adam, you insist on making yourself in my image? Here's the law. (laughs) Go for it. Try making yourself in my image. Well, now Jesus tells us in Matthew 11 that John is the greatest of those born of women, greatest of the first birth. And yet Jesus also says in John 10, all who came before me, all who came before me are thieves and robbers. You see, religion takes credit from God and his word who is the bridegroom of grace, the new covenant. So John saw the light and said, he must increase and I must decrease. Jesus must increase. But, but now, where does he increase, Nicodemus? Where is he begotten? Where is he born? <laughs> In you. In you, Nicodemus. He's the seed that gets implanted In you, so there is an old man that I must never defend, and yet he's the birthplace of the new man for whom I should never apologize, about whom I should never feel ashamed. You know, sometimes I've prayed, sometimes I've I've preached, and, and Jesus has shown up I mean, in ways and with such power that that it scares me. Because my old man feels responsible and I think to myself, I can't do that. Well, of course I can't do that. But Jesus does do that. Some will say, well, that sermon, it it, it, it changed my life and and I panic and and my old man says, oh, you know, um, really, it was nothing. Wrong! (laughs) It was Jesus. In nothing. You know, you each have a gift of the Spirit. It's Jesus at work in nothing. And that's not nothing. Sometimes I'll testify or preach and and people will hate me. I mean, really, religious people hate. Call me heretic, right? Hate-filled, anonymous letters. It's hate. John 7, Jesus says, if you're of the world, the world cannot hate you. In John 15, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. You know the world hates Jesus in me? And the world hates Jesus in you. Well, if your old man feels responsible for Jesus, you'll hide him under a bush. Don't hide the light under a bushel of of shame. There is a new man in you for whom you must not apologize and never feel shame. And there's an old man in you that you must never defend and always deliver up to death. So you might ask yourself, well, how do I know the difference? How do I judge between them? Well, you don't judge. You expose them both to judgment. Jesus told us, this is the judgment, the light. The old man hates the light and is destroyed by the light. The new man runs to the light. Why? To exhibit God's grace. 
So if somebody accuses you of something, says to you, I- I'm offended by that thing, you, they're offended at something, say, oh gosh, well, well tell me about it. Let's take a look at it. Let's shine the light on it. If it's the old man, say, well, golly, it's worse than you thought. That's my old man. That's sin and death. Let's kill him. Let's crucify him. Confess it. If it's the new man, if it's Jesus, you say, well, yeah, I I know that he offends. I know that he can be offensive, but he's good. He's good. But never be afraid of the light. So John says, I must decrease. I must decrease. How how do I decrease? Because you can't cast out fear with fear. You can't eliminate darkness with more darkness. You can't clean the self with more self. You can't improve the flesh with more flesh. How do I decrease? He must increase. He's the light. He is the judgment on my old man that causes or that saves me from my old man. I can't save me with me because I need to be saved from me. So I don't strive to make the old man better. I turn on the light. I don't try to clean him up. I deliver him to judgment. I don't fix my sin. I confess my sin and believe God's grace. And God's grace is a new me. What I'm saying is a Christian is not saved and sanctified or changed. A Christian is not saved and changed by works of the law and the power of the flesh, but by grace working through faith. In the words of Paul, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. In other words, Jesus is my new me. I must see who I truly am to be rid of who I truly am not. And who I truly am is revealed in Jesus. He is faith, hope, and love in me and on me. I am clothed in his righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1.30, God has made him my wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Jesus gives me his life, his me, and I become one spirit with him, says the Apostle Paul. And this is not a temporal, fading sort of dream. This is eternal Reality. In that movie, The Man of La Mancha, Cervantes is thrown into a prison of fear. The other prisoners threaten to just rip him to pieces, but he asks that they would would judge him after he tells them a story. But more than just tell them the story, he has them act out the story. It's the story of an old man who appears to have gone mad because he imagines that he has become a brave knight named Don Quixote. He imagines that he is this brave knight Don Quixote and he imagines that the town prostitute is the fair virgin Dulcinea. It's almost like imagining that you are actually the body of Christ (laughs) and that the people around you are actually the bride of Christ. I mean, to really believe that in this world would would just look mad. Well, a fellow in this story comments, madmen are God's truth. A priest says, I think Jesus must have been mad. 
Well, the old man in the story thinks he's Don Quixote who dreams the impossible dream, who fights the unbeatable foe, who bears with unbearable sorrow, who runs where the brave dare not grow, who, who, who writes the unrightable wrong, who loves pure and chaste from afar, who is willing to march into hell for a heavenly cause. And this, this is not a duty, says Don Quixote. Nay, it's a privilege, the joy of fearless and faithful love in the image of God. See, Don Quixote sees the world not as it is, but as it should be. He sees himself not as he is, but as he should be. He sees the town prostitute not as she is, but as she should be. Do you realize that the world as it should be is the world as it is in eternity? And I, as I should be, is I, as I really am in eternity. And you, as you should be, is you, as you really are in eternity. Not a thief or a murderer, not a harlot, but the bride of Christ. Now, this clip that we're about to watch is what those people in prison are imagining they are imagining Alonso, imagining that he is Don Quixote, who is imagining that Aldonza the prostitute is the fair virgin Dulcinea. To choose to imagine what is eternally true is called faith. Dulcinea. Get up from there. Get up. My lady. Why do you call me by that name? Because it is yours. My name is Aldonza. I know you, my lady. I think you know me not. All my years I have known you, your nobility of spirit. Long have I seen you in my heart. Why do you do these things? What things? It's ridiculous, the things you do. I come in a world of iron to make a world of gold. What does it mean? Question. The mission of each true knight is duty. Nay, is privilege. To dream the impossible dream. And the world will be better for this. That one man scorned and covered with scars Still stole with his last ounce of courage The unreachable Once, just once, would you look at me as I really am? I see beauty, purity, Dulcinea. You, you keep me waiting, would you? I wasn't, I didn't mean my to. My lady, my little slower. No, stop, stay clear. I will strike a woman. Ah, stand back and I'll break your head. Thou heart of flint and bowels of cork! 
Well, Alonso looks like an old fool, doesn't he? And yet with his faith, he changes his world. He convinces Aldonza, the prostitute, that she's really Dulcinea, which means sweetness. And then at one point, Dulcinea, when he struggles, even convinces him he's really Don Quixote. And then he acts like Don Quixote. And she acts like sweetness, like Dulcinea. And just by telling the story of Don Quixote and Dulcinea, just like telling the story of Jesus and his bride, by just telling the story in the prison of fear, Cervantes convinces the prisoners that they are far more than thieves and murderers, and they become far more than thieves and murderers. In fact, by the time Cervantes leaves the prison of fear, the prison of fear has become a household of faith. To dream the impossible dream. To fight the unbeatable foe. To bear with unbearable sorrow. To run where the brave dare not go. I know that's kind of hokey, it's 1972. But you see, something was born in that prison of fear. And this world is a prison of fear. And my heart, the old man is like a prison of fear. But you know what, we gather each Sabbath and we tell a story. We even come and act it out. And then we sing some songs about that story and remind each other who Jesus is and who he says that we really are. We cannot turn ourselves into Jesus. Yet by grace, through faith, Jesus turns himself into us. So you on your own are far worse than you thought. And yet you, as you really are, are far, far, far better than you know. And you don't change by trying to make yourself better. You change by confessing that old self and receiving the new self by grace through faith. And soon you'll see that the old man, the old man is just a dream, a bad dream. And the new man, oh, he's no dream. He's eternal reality. And on the night, on the night that he, our Lord Jesus, was betrayed by all in that prison of fear, he took bread and he broke it saying, this is my body given to you. 
Need to eat something? Eat this. Eat me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant, the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. You see, he dreamed the impossible dream. He fought the unbeatable foe. He bore the unbearable sorrow. He ran where the brave dare not go. He righted the unrightable wrong. He marched into hell with a heavenly cause. And the world is, oh, so much better for this, that one man scorned and covered with scars would dream the impossible dream. He is the man of faith. And he gives his faith to you. He bears your old life to destruction and he gives you his life as your own. In the morning, he would bear your sin to crucifixion. You know, whenever you feel frightened or anxious or despairing, or arrogant, it's him. It's your old man. And so this is what I want you to do. I want you to remember that he has been crucified with Christ. And so look to the cross and preach to yourself, preach to yourself, I am not that me any longer. I am not attached to that me. I am not he. I'm a new me. And when you feel afraid and you think to yourself that the way is just impossibly hard, I want you to remember this table. I, that old me, has been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, remember this table and that he gave his life to you. I am a new me. I am clothed with he. And nothing, nothing is impossible for him. Real quick, we have to finish John 3. Next verse. He who comes from above, anothen, is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one, no one receives his testimony. How many receive his testimony? None! Ah, next verse. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, so he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things, all things into his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has, has eternal life. Whoever does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God, the wrath of God remains. It was and it remains. It remains on him. How many does the wrath of God remain on? Right here, all for none receive his testimony. According to this paragraph, none are saved. All are condemned. Yet, God so loved the world, not some of the world, God so loved 
the world, so, so all are condemned, but he desires all to be saved. I mean, to me, that seems like an impossible dream. And yet the disciples asked Jesus one day, who then can be saved? And he said, with men, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. See, your old man can't do it. Religion can't do it. But the new man, oh, that's another story. And you see, he is asking you to live his story. And my friends, that's not a duty. That's a privilege. And so come to the table and surrender your life and receive his life. In other words, dream his dreams. It's called faith. And his dreams always come true. Let's worship. Dark cups are wine, light cups are juice, and they are both his blood, his life. Amen. So this guy had a Messiah complex, and he went in to see his pastor, and the pastor ran some tests and called him back in after a few hours and said, I have good news. It's not a complex. What am I saying? Am I saying that you are the Messiah or I am the Messiah? No! You can't save anybody. I can't save anybody. However, I am the body of the Messiah. I am clothed with the Messiah. I am the bride of the Messiah. And you see, I think the Messiah wants me to join his quest. In other words, he wasn't just interested in getting you into the kingdom, he wants you to join his quest. And if that feels to you like a duty, oh dang, it's so hard, and, it's just, and I'm scared, and that's your old man, crucify him. It's not a duty, it's a privilege. He's called you into his service. He asked you to join his quest, and what is his quest? To love everybody the way he loved you. And so may you believe the gospel and live the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.